0: Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest is Krista Kiefer, winner of the C.J. and Evelyn Coley Research Award from the Alabama Historical Association for 2022. The Coley Research Award supports Alabama history-related research by a graduate student. Krista's award supports her work on her article, I'm Afraid He Ain't Our Kind of Folks, George Wallace, Happy Chandler, and the Making of Modern Conservatism. Christo, welcome, and thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Krista, it's unusual that we get to hear about the Coley Research Award recipients and their work. So I'm interested to know, what is your project about?
1: I'm studying a guy who became known as Happy Chandler. His full name was Albert Beveridge Chandler. But everybody came to know him as Happy because he was known as this happy-go-lucky guy. Every picture you saw of him. He had this huge grin on his face, and I was really intrigued by him because he's a really fascinating character. He's a guy kind of like Huey Long in the sense that he's really bombastic, uh, just a little bit different than most politicians that you would see, and a real polarizing character. But I've never heard of him before, and that's kind of what intrigued me about him. Was I come from Tennessee, not Kentucky which is where Chandler was from and where he served in government, where he was a senator. And i would never heard of him. As I got my degree at the University of Tennessee at Martin, I wanted to study Southern politics, and I actually wanted to study Huey Long. So I came to the University of Kentucky to work with Dr. Tracy Campbell, who had worked on agricultural movements, He'd worked on Southern politics. He'd written a biography. So it seemed like a good fit, and that kind of lured me here. I was luckily assigned to TA form in a class called The Making of Modern Kentucky. And I was caught real off guard by this because I thought, man, I don't know a thing about Kentucky. What the heck am I going to do here? And that's the first thing I asked him. I said, I don't know anything about this class. What am I going to do? And he goes, that's fine. You don't need to know anything about it. What we're teaching here is American history. We're just looking at it through the lens of Kentucky. And we got to about week three, four of this class. And we started talking about the New Deal. And we started talking about FDR. And what we found out was that FDR travels to Kentucky during 1938, because he's so concerned about what Chandler's doing. And Chandler's kind of pushing back against the New Deal in Kentucky. But what most people remember about this is that Chandler still wanted to be so heavily associated with Franklin Roosevelt that, When he gets the opportunity to sit with him in a car, he leaps over the president so he can make sure that he's going to sit right there by him and his smiling face can be seen in every single picture for the rest of time sitting there by FDR. And I thought, man, this guy is kind of wacky and I've never even heard of him. Let me look into him. One of the next things I find out is that George Wallace, when he's running for president in 1968, one of his top choices to be his running mate, the guy he eventually settles on, actually, is Chandler. And I thought, well, this is kind of odd. Here's a guy that wanted to be associated with Franklin Roosevelt. And he was a new dealer, although he was a tepid new dealer. And he did give a little bit of pushback when he was trying to get elected in Kentucky and push Alvin Barkley out of the way. Alvin Barkley, of course, was FDR's right-hand man in the late 30s and early 40s. And I thought, man, how does a guy like Chandler who's trying to be associated with FDR end up wanting to be associated with George Wallace by the time 1968 comes around? So that transition from 1938 to 1968, at the time, to me, it didn't really make much sense. And I thought, gee, how does this happen? So I started looking into him a little bit more. I wrote a master's thesis on him and i come to find out that maybe Dr. Campbell was right. And this is a good way to look at American history. And in my case, American politics, by examining Happy Chandler and going, how do we see some of these Southern politicians go from New Dealers to supporters of someone like George Wallace? Or after Wallace and Chandler falling out, which we can talk about a little more, Chandler goes on and supports Nixon, who, of course, eventually wins the election. So I gravitated to that question of, how does this new dealer end up supporting a guy like Wallace? It just didn't seem to make sense to me coming in as a fresh green grad student, seeing a fun character like this have this big transition.
0: So is this part of your dissertation?
1: Yes, it is. It's the capstone, the final chapter of my dissertation.
0: And what is your dissertation on in particular, this being the final chapter?
1: The dissertation is essentially... Happy Chandler, and the politics of civil rights from 1932 to 1968. So examining his career from that time period. He's also got some really big odd moments that made this moment where he comes in to be supposedly George Wallace's vice president. It made it seem a little more weird because in 1955, Chandler's the governor of Kentucky that integrates Kentucky schools. He sends the National Guard into Sturges and Clay, Kentucky, to make sure that black students can go and integrate all white schools. So once I start looking at that, that was something else that made me go, okay, well, why the heck does this guy who integrated Kentucky schools end up wanting to have anything to do with Wallace? And maybe more importantly, why does Wallace want to have anything to do with him, right? Wallace made his name standing in the schoolhouse door claiming to protect segregation today, tomorrow, and forever. And only a few years later, here he is asking Chandler, the guy that integrated the schools in his state and that sent the National Guard to protect Black students, here he is asking him to run as his vice president in 68 when he's trying to get elected. So the dissertation examines his career in those timeframes.
0: I'm really fascinated by the quote in your title for this proposed article, I'm Afraid He Ain't Our Kind of Folks. Can you explain that a little bit more?
1: Yes, I think that's a quote that really kind of drives home some of the argument that I'm beginning to make in this chapter, and that when Wallace goes to look for a running mate, his campaign starts saying, we've got two options. We can solidify our support in the Deep South, where we're already popular, and we can make sure people like Reagan don't intrude on it. We can protect from Nixon, who throughout the campaign is going to eventually try to go in and attempt to gain some support in the Deep South. Or we can branch out a little bit. We can try to win some of these border South states and break out of the Deep South because we're probably not going to do what we want to do, which is, throw this election to the House of Representatives if we just win the Deep South. So they start looking for candidates that can help them do that. Oddly enough, Colonel Sanders even comes up as a possible vice presidential candidate for Wallace. But they eventually settle on Chandler. They see this guy that's got a long career in politics. They see this guy who did integrate his school. In the 1940s, he was the commissioner of the MLB Major League Baseball. When Jackie Robinson entered the league, and he may not have spearheaded that, but at the very least, he allowed it to happen. He said this should happen and was relatively supportive of Robinson's entrance into the MLB. So Wallace's campaign saw that, and they said, you know, one of the biggest knots on our campaign is that we're nothing more than a bunch of racists from Alabama that we're really just race baiting this entire campaign, and that's the only thing it's about. But the campaign knew the key to success were things like law and order, for example, which is the number one issue during the 1968 campaign, that, yeah, sure, we can use a little bit of race baiting here, but we can also capture those border south states. We can capture some of these cities in the Midwest as well if we can and haul on law and order. So we can distance ourselves a little bit from our racist past by picking the guy that integrated schools in his state that allowed Jackie Robinson to enter the league. Well, what they also saw in Chandler was a guy that had become really supportive of law and order politics as well during the late 50s, early 60s. After he became angry with his state's Democratic Party, he supported a Republican in 67, to become governor in Louie Nunn. And then right after that election, as a thank you for Chandler's support, Louie Nunn put Chandler on the board of trustees at the University of Kentucky in 67. So as you can imagine, on most college campuses at that time, there's a ton of unrest. And Chandler is a huge proponent of law and order on campuses. He's a huge proponent of banning communist speakers and banning speakers that might promote unrest so they see a guy that has a bit of a history with civil rights and being positive with civil rights, but they also see a guy that supports law and order politics. In essence, he's a voter that they're trying to attract. And a guy that at this time, particularly in the 40s and 50s was also a household name. So he brings a bit of legitimacy to the campaign. He kind of distances Wallace from his racist past while also rubbing his credentials in the law and order field. Problem is, Wallace isn't all that convinced. And he tells his campaign, look, he's a liberal. He's a civil rights activist. Is that really what we want? But his fame says, look, we got every Ku Klux Planner. We got every John Burt Society member. We got every nut in the country, they actually tell him. We can't get any of the decent people with you, George. Uh, we're going to need Chandler to do that. You can work one side of the street. Happy can work the other. And we can build a campaign that can get a little bit more support here. So that quote, he ain't our kind of folks shows that tension between what Wallace is trying to do and what his campaign's trying to do.
0: But that's not the entire story, because Happy Chandler did not become the vice presidential candidate. Now, spoiler alert for any listener out there who wants to read the final product, tell us what happened.
1: Yeah, that's the other part of the quote. But from the supporters of Wallace instead of Wallace himself, just the night before Chandler is announced as the vice presidential candidate. It leaked to the press. They get a hold of it. They run with it. Hey, Chandler is going to run with Wallace. There's uproar among Wallace supporters, among his most staunch, his most vocal supporters. Even in Kentucky, the leader of Wallace's party in Kentucky immediately dissolves the party. Because he's knows of Chandler. He's seen Chandler his entire career. And he says, this hey, guy's integrated our schools. This isn't what we're looking for out of a Wallace campaign. So they dissolve the party in Kentucky once it leaks to the press. But he also does it partly because he's mad that, hey, you picked a Kentuckian and you didn't even come and talk to us about it. And we're the head of the party in the state. So a little bit of infighting there. But particularly in Texas, there's a bunch of oil moguls that are supportive of Wallace that are also involved with the John Burt Society, so his more far right-wing supporters, but also his more wealthy supporters, they're not happy with Chandler. Threatened, a guy named Nelson Bunker Hunt, who was a huge oil mogul from Texas, threatened to pull much of Texas's party support from him. And then he also says, if you get rid of Chandler and add Curtis bombs away LeMay, I'll give a million dollars to be your vice presidential candidate, to replace his salary because he was going to have to step down from the board of a company. They wanted a more staunch, anti-communist supporter, one that wasn't going to rock the boat when it came to racial politics within the campaign, one that was going to be a more staunch supporter of, say, segregation, for example, or at least they weren't known as someone who upended segregation within their state. So they put LeMay on the ticket and anybody who knows the story of the Wallace campaign knows just how brilliantly that turned out for Wallace. LeMay comes out and immediately is making pretty crazy statements that where they tested nuclear weapons, everything was fine there. The crabs were a little hot, he said, but everything else was fine. Kind of advocates, hey, we should use nuclear weapons in Vietnam. I don't think that's a big deal. He wanted to cure people of their quote phobia of nuclear weapons, that they were nothing to be scared of and He seemed to put off the air that, hey, we should use nuclear weapons all the time and whenever we want. So he really made the campaign look bad, a decision that was supposed to make the campaign look more legitimate, more stable with a long term politician like Chandler, who had a history of at least not making outlandish statements like that. They chose LeMay and it made the campaign look absolutely unhinged. So they pretty immediately send LeMay off to God knows where and tell him, Stop making statements, and we're not going to really have you speak for us anymore. So Chandler gets kicked off, LeMay gets put on, and it runs the campaign into the ground there at the end.
0: So you have been attempting to get an article out of this research. How's that going?
1: I just presented it in Arizona at the Policy History Conference, a pretty big conference surrounding political history. Got to talk to some people there, like Donald Critchlow, who runs the Policy History Journal. He's encouraged me to submit it there. I just received a fellowship at Emory University to research in Dan Carter's collection. He wrote this masterful biography of George Wallace that won the Bancroft Prize. He's got a bunch of files there and papers there pertaining to Chandler Wallace's 68 election that I'm going to go down and look at to finalize some of the research for it as well.
0: Great. I hope you will keep us posted about that. Uh, Listen, you're talking a little bit about your sources. Can you go back over your sources and tell us the main collections that you've been using?
1: You've got your typical newspaper sources to give you the general story. But we've also got the A.B. Chandler collection at the University of Kentucky, which is an absolutely massive uh, collection of over 600 boxes. A lot of stuff on the 60s. And it's got a treasure trove of correspondence between Kentuckians and Chandler, where they're writing in and either saying, you being with Wallace is the greatest thing that could ever happen to this country, or this is the worst thing that could ever happen to this country. And Chandler, of course, he was quite popular, quite well known. He had really famous friends. One of them was Nick Clooney, who's actually George Clooney's father. Nick Clooney had a television show up in Ohio. And for instance, he sends a letter to Chandler saying, what are you doing? You know, you just a decade ago, you were doing these great things like integrating Kentucky schools and all this. This is going to ruin your record as a politician. Historians will look on you horribly if you run with somebody like Wallace. So the Chandler collection is an absolute treasure trove of, of that kind of stuff, particularly within Kentucky. I actually just got back about two or three weeks ago from the Alabama Department of Archives and History, looking through Wallace's collection, and he's got a bunch of great stuff in that collection, talking about his 68 run, talking about his career ahead of that, a lot of the early planning for the 68 run in 1967, talking about some of these things, about what the campaign needs to be, what issues are they going to hit on, things like that, him talking either with constituents, so there's a lot of Alabama constituents writing to him, or talking with members of his campaign about what they're going to do. So that's an absolute treasure trove. And then some of the stuff from Emory, which I've seen glimpses of, are really fantastic. Things like that quote actually is contained in a manuscript that is in Dan Carter's collection. He's also got some oral histories that I'm really excited to see. Probably the final major source for this is we have one of the premier oral history centers at the University of Kentucky. So we've got tons of oral histories here. Also, years and years ago, a prominent Southern historian was going to write a biography on Happy Chandler. Never got around to doing it. Before he wrote it, he conducted a bunch of oral histories, though, over 150. He gave them all to another historian who was going to write a biography of Chandler. And he never got around to doing it. Finally, once he retired, he donated over 150 interviews to the Oral History Center. The Oral History Center there already had around 100 oral histories, maybe a little over that, on Chandler. But then they added these new ones that had been holed up since the 1980s. So I've got around 300 oral history interviews on Chandler and many of them talking about his time during the 50s and 60s, about much of what we are been talking about today here. There's nothing better than hearing some of the people that were actually there discuss it. You really get a sense for Chandler, too, particularly when you hear him talk about anything, and it really drives it home. So oral histories have been quite central to it.
0: Sounds like quite a project. When do you anticipate being finished with your dissertation?
1: I think I've got about another year here. I've got five chapters planned, and I'm finishing up a rough draft of a third chapter. So I'm kind of chugging along and optimistically looking at having everything cleaned up and finished in about a year.
0: I hope that it goes as well as you expect it to go. And I want to thank you for speaking with me.
1: And I really appreciate you having me here.
0: Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at City Stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.